welcome to Women Express. Many of you know me as the communication expert, teaching communication, public speaking, prepping executives for interviews, as well as for main stage speeches. Some of you may not know, for the last 18 years, I've also been doing women's leadership classes. And these classes have been very successful in the corporate environment with many of my clients. Women Express actually grew out of that experience, the experience of helping people be better and more effective at communicating and helping people also, specifically women, learn to lead in the corporate environment and in the world. It's no surprise to me that Women Express is the combination of those two. I clearly believe and feel very strongly that women and their voices are critical in our world today. The things that you feel in your heart, the things that you believe in need to be said. And it's time for us to say it. And that's what Women Express is all about. I have a very, very important guest today. And the reason I hesitate is because reading her book so inspired me that I just surprised by my own feedback of having read her book and reading parts of her book today. In just a minute, I'm going to introduce you to our speaker. And I want you to take out your tablet and begin to take notes because some of the things that she's saying wrap around all the things that I've been teaching for the last 18 years in Women's Summits. So it's refreshing. It's wonderful to have the camaraderie and it's great to have another woman mentor me in the process of leadership as a woman. So I am excited today. I'm really excited for our interview, our conversation, our talk today with this well-known author, Robin Gerber. She wrote the book, Leadership the Eleanor Roosevelt Way, Timeless Strategies from the First Lady of Courage. I always say I'm excited, so forgive me, listeners, and forgive me, Robin, but I really am excited to talk to you today and to talk more about these strategies that you seem to channel from Eleanor Roosevelt. So welcome, Robin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes. We have a common friend, Deborah Sue, who we interviewed quite some time ago about Yes to Success. And as we've been building our audience and building our conversations, what I call everyday Oprahs with everyday Oprahs, it's been more and more exciting and people have referred other people to be my guests. And that's how we got together. We have common friendships. Yeah. And isn't that kind of how women do it? It absolutely is. And Deb, Deborah Sue, as you call her, I called her Debbie because I met her in kindergarten. So we've been friends a very, very long time. And her program, Yes to Success, is fantastic. And I love uh, what you said about everyday Oprahs, because one of the things I really tried to do with Leadership the Eleanor Roosevelt Way was present her as a real person. She really is like all of the rest of us. She had a terribly difficult childhood. She had lots of tragedy in her life and disappointment and sorrow and so she isn't just this icon who we think of, she is that, but she came to that through a lot of personal work and personal difficulty like all of us. So one of the best 
things that people have said to me about the book is you made her so relatable. And so I love your Mm -hmm. everyday Oprah comment is absolutely right. Oprah, after all, had a lot of difficulty in her life. And I think one of the reasons she's so popular is that we can relate to her. And I, she's relatable. Mm-hmm, right. And I tried to make Eleanor relatable in this book. Well, she does come across very re- alive and relatable in the book. And, you know, it's interesting that you would bring up the idea of difficulties. Some of the greatest leaders that we have have experienced difficulties in their lives, disappointments, huge disappointments, and turn those things around to use them as fertilizer and fuel for their success. And it seems to me that you've picked out several stories in this book about some of the things that trip ups, downfalls, and how they become part of your success and how you become a leader as a result of it. Yes, absolutely. There just isn't a life without that. And that's if we can hold on to that idea, it helps to pick us back up when things are, are particularly difficult. You know, it's interesting because I come from a background where I started meditating when I was 19 years old. And I won't tell you how old I am now, but it's been a while. You're younger than I am. (laughs) It's been a while. And the thing that, you know, I felt at the time I started to meditate because, you know, things weren't so wonderful for me in my life at that time, and at least not the way I thought it. And they certainly weren't, it wasn't ideal. And I just really feel that in many ways, I started to meditate to be on the glossy side of life. And it did bring me a glossy side of life. But sometimes I'm not on the glossy side of life. And it's learning to to accept the glossy side, to strive for the glossy side, and accept the side that's not glossy, and use it to become a better you, to become a better self. Eleanor said, we don't become heroes overnight, just a step at a time finding strength and courage and confidence every time we look fear in the face. And I do think that when we have those moments of real difficulty, as you're talking about, the non-glossy side, we often go to a place of fear. Yes. We fear that things aren't going to turn out the way we want, that things are going to get worse, that bad things are going to happen, all that kind of stuff. And as she says, it's just, it really is just a step at a time facing up to that and each time getting a little bit stronger. Yeah, facing it every time and getting stronger. I love that. You asked me, Robin, to look at the table of contents, even before I got the book, and just see where I wanted to focus today with our listeners. And this whole thing about adversity and courage and strength is one of the chapters that I really, you know, facing criticism with courage and what courage really means for a woman, along with the idea of finding mentors and advisors. And one of the chapters that really struck to my heart was the chapter on mothering, training for leadership. And I'd love to have you, before we go into the courage piece, have you talk a little bit about that, because that's a fundamental to women, our mothering skills, whether you're mother or not. Yeah. Well, there's very good uh, research from the uh, Center for Women's Leadership at Rutgers that talks about the idea that women are taught to take care and men are taught to take charge. And so when it comes to leadership, there is this dichotomy. And even though taking care is a perfectly good attribute to have, if, first of all, 
you're seen as someone who's only going to take care, then that works against you in terms of trying to have leadership and take charge. But also women, we see ourselves, we've been taught to see ourselves as caretakers. So mothering is a little bit of a metaphor because as you say, not everyone's a mother, but we will take care because maybe it's taking care of an elderly parent. If we have elderly parents, it's the woman we know who ends up taking care of them, taking care of partners, children, (laughs) male partners, taking care of children if you have them. So this kind of behavior is very, very much what women are taught to do. And the question is, is there leadership that we can find in that? And I think there absolutely is. And it's been unrecognized for too long, continues to be, although it's, it's a bit better. And there's these silos created, women go into work, and supposedly that has nothing to do with what they do at home. But as a, one of the women I interviewed in the book said, who worked at Apple at the time, she said, oh, yes, dealing with, it, with other executives, it's no different than having two children and one cookie. <laughs> yeah, I like that. The same, the same principle, one, one cookie, two kids. <laughs> Have to figure out how to negotiate, how to make people feel that they're valued. All those kinds of things come up yeah. with children. Yeah. Uh, in the book, I talk about my son coming home one day and he found a credit card on the street. And he came in and he said, look, I found this credit card. Could I use it? You know, can I go out and buy some stuff with it? I said, no because it's not yours. And in fact, look at the name on it. It actually belongs to our neighbor and you need to take it back to them. And so here was an opportunity to teach ethics and honesty and what you do to help other people and what community means, all those kinds of things Mm -hmm. came up in a parenting situation. Yes. So those are the same kinds of skills you would want to have in the workplace. So Eleanor herself, Eleanor Roosevelt did not have very good mothering. Her mother was very unloving to her mm-hmm. and she suffered a lot in her childhood. But then she went on and had five children of her own who were not very happy with her mothering. And she always said, I really wasn't sure what to do. And she did some sort of odd things like every day they had to lay on the floor and just essentially meditate. <laughs> You know, they they were just, you know, couldn't do anything. But I think that the things that she says, you can see that she took a lot out of dealing with these children. One of her quotes is, character building begins in infancy and continues until death. I think she very much saw herself as teaching her children about character, the kind of character she wanted them to have. Mm -hmm. You know, in my workshops, uh, my Women Leading with Impact workshops, one of the things I talk about, it's that even if you don't have children, you still have that mothering gene. And it's very hard for women, most women, to really separate out, you know, one loving one child from the other. They may have a different quality of love that you give, but the love, the consistent love or the love in general is always there. And I liked what you said in the opening of this chapter about the metaphor for men is the male vernacular for leadership is sports and gambling and the military. These are their metaphors. And most corporations that I go into, they all talk about taking the risk and shooting the three-pointer and the touchdown and how are we going to get to, you know, the direction of the task, you know, is all about, you know, the drill and 
all of those kinds of metaphors that we as women also use as being enculturated into the corporate or, you know, the global world perspective. And I try to get women to understand that we would talk about those same things in a very different way. And that we're more developed around the ability to build relationships and to lead from a relationship, from a customer-centric way of being, you know, because we care about the community. We care about the collective. That's why collaboration is such a great thing for us. And I had a client yesterday that I was working with, and she's going in to interview for a job that really is already her job. But she's coming across with these kind of male metaphors when she interacts with the men in her environment. She's in a very male-oriented environment. And so she comes across combative. And I said, no, you could still be directed. You could direct this team of executive men by just saying, you know, I'm so impassioned by the things that I do that really help support the vision of the brand. Take it off of you. You still get the feedback of the job that you're doing, but you open the door by guiding that relationship to understand the value that you bring to the table. Would you say that that's kind of like an Eleanor way of being? Yes. She was very inclusive and collaborative. Her great biographer, Blanche Wiesen Cook says, Eleanor liked to do things in a gang. And that was absolutely how she approached everything. And I think that women do tend to be more collaborative, inclusive, relationship-oriented, We have some evidence now with the brain research that's been going on for the last 20 years and still ongoing, but this does actually relate to brain chemistry and the way our brains operate. The women operate on both left and right side of the brain. Men tend to operate only on one side at a time. They're not sure what causes this, but I think it's, of course, a combination of nature, this brain activity, maybe genes we don't know yet, and nurture. Mm-hmm. that we are taught to be nice, which is good and bad. Right, right. <laughs> and, the, you know, the tendency of women to say, I'm sorry all the time. Yes, yes. I'm going to have a whole talk around that. It's coming up, uh, why we should not say I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So much. Exactly. You see it, you know, on the, I remember teaching a little girl's soccer team and they were saying it at like six, seven years old. I mean, it was really, there's no reason to be doing that. I think one thing that Eleanor Roosevelt did was she was not apologetic about those things she believed in. So if you're talking about something that you believe in, then there's no reason to be backing off or saying, I'm sorry. There was a time she was giving a talk. It was during the depression. And she was telling a story of a man who stole bread for his family. And she said, well, he would have been a poor, pitiful kind of man if he hadn't resorted to stealing bread to feed his family because they were starving. Wow. And the next day, all these newspapers around the country said, the first lady is inciting revolution. She's telling people to go out and be thieves and steal stuff. And, you know, this is terrible. And there's a press conference. And of course, in this day and age, she would have backed off, right? Somebody would back off from their comment, but not Eleanor. She said, no, I am not changing what I said because the fact is that we're going to have a revolution in America if we can't help people figure out how to feed their families. And the instinct of him to do that, no matter what it takes, was absolutely something to be expected. And she 
didn't back off a bit. And I think she and she certainly didn't say, I'm sorry. So if it's something, if you're doing something that you believe in and you believe it's right, don't compromise it by saying you're sorry. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. One of the other things that you mentioned in her book about her is her ability to use the platform of communication. So, of course, being, (laughs) you know, I firmly believe that if you know how to communicate, if you can do public speaking, it really increases your visibility and places you front and center. But you do have to be able to stand on your convictions. And she says here, or at least you say, and when I say she says, because to me, the two of you are so synchronized. And I was channeling her. (laughs) You had to have been. You had to have been. She says content plus confidence equals effective communication. I love that because it's true. Yeah. Communication, I always say uh, communication is the default in leadership. If you're having a problem, the first thing to think about is, What's the communication like? If there's an employee who isn't doing what they're supposed to do, or you're getting bad feedback on a project you're doing, go back and think, what's the communication like? Eleanor was the great communicator. I mean, the first thing she did right out of the box being first lady was she announced that she was going to have press conferences. Well, no first lady had ever done that. And she only invited women reporters (laughs) And Franklin's press secretary was beside himself. And then she scheduled her first press conference three days before Franklin's first press conference. So the first press conference of the Roosevelt White House was held by Eleanor Roosevelt. (laughs) Oh, that's so powerful. I'm hoping that all of you all listening out there see this. She is a shining example of how we have to step up right now. You have to be. And not be afraid to do new things, which she was very criticized for doing it. But those press conferences went on for the whole 13 years that she was in the White House. And that core of women reporters who were being laid off because it was the Depression. But the newspapers had to keep them on to cover Eleanor. So they became very loyal to her, which was a great microphone for a first lady who, after all, doesn't really have any authority. The other thing she did was she started writing a monthly column for McCall's Magazine, which was a big magazine at the time. But her first column was titled, I Want You to Write to Me. Now, she was already getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of letters a month. It doubled after she wrote this because she said, I don't just want you to write me what your problems are. I do want to hear about your problems. I want you to tell me what your solutions are because we don't know everything here in Washington, and we need your ideas too. Wow. And so she got this just barrage, deluge of letters. And I think that also is a great lesson in communication, that communication is listening as much as it is talking. And what she was saying is, I'm ready to listen to you. We want to listen to you. And if you're leading and you are not listening, you're going to have a problem. This is an important piece of the puzzle. I mean, it's this, you know, we all think that communication is about what we say. And you do have to have things to say. You can't sit on the sidelines and not say or talk about the things that you believe in. But that listening helps you to deepen your conversation. It helps you to expand out towards the people that are listening to you when you do speak. So I really value what you just said about that. And inviting people to speak. So 
you know, speaking to the first lady would be something very intimidating, but she opened the door to that. And then when you read the letters, they are absolutely amazing. You know, people would write to her and say, if it's possible that you have a Sunday dress that you aren't using for church anymore, could you possibly send it to me? Because I only have one dress and it's not suitable to wear to church. (laughs) So this is how it was the depression, terrible time, but it also shows how personally connected people felt to her. Wow. That someone could ask her for her hand-me-down dress. Wow. That's an incredible, that's an incredible story. It's a lovely story. And I see a little mothering in that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. No question. I mean, look, it's not that we should reject that part of ourselves. It's a great part of ourselves. I mean, quite frankly, one of the reasons I came up with the women's leading with impact class is because I was starting to teach men how to build relationship from with their teams and to be more collaborative. And I'm using all these skills that are natural to us as women. So it's really, we're trying to balance both sides. There's nothing wrong with, believe it, I definitely will use a metaphor, a sports metaphor, because my children are both very, they're athletes. And so I'm around sports a lot. But I also value my ability to communicate and to use that silo that's more conducive to the way that we lead. So I think it is a balance and we have to see that both sides benefit when we become clear about what we bring to the table. And one of those things are those skills that we just talked about. There's nothing wrong with using the metaphor of, for instance, baking a cake, you know, Mm -hmm. and how it's important to have many different ingredients and, you know, the way that that when those ingredients come together in the right way, you get something that's absolutely fantastic and wonderful and everyone can enjoy. That's a great metaphor for a team. It's a great metaphor for a team. Now tell me a little bit about the chapter on, (laughs) I love it, criticism with courage. Yeah, that's, well, Eleanor for doing all these things she was doing was getting very criticized, of course. And no first lady had ever done the job the way she did. And so, for instance, she was going out of Washington, D.C., around the country, visiting places to see for herself what was going on. And so uh, she was called Eleanor Everywhere. Supposedly, a man named his clock after her because it never stopped running. There was a joke that Admiral Byrd at the North Pole had an extra place set for dinner every night in case Eleanor dropped in, you know. And that was sort of the funny criticism. But then there was very serious criticism because one of her great issues was civil rights. And this was a a highly segregated racist country in the 1930s. And she really spoke out very fervently about civil rights. She had friends who were Black Americans, Mary McLeod Bethune, the great educator, Walter White, who was the head of the NAACP. And so she was vitriolically criticized in Southern papers. They had caricatures of her looking like a black person. They, you know, made up stories about her that there, there were supposedly Eleanor clubs among the black maids in the South and they were plotting to kill their, the people they worked for. So these were very, very harsh criticisms. Uh, The Ku Klux Klan had a price on her head. Wow. 
$25,000 if you could kill the first lady. So Eleanor had to think about how to handle criticism. And she, in fact, wrote an entire essay called How to Handle Criticism. You can find it online. And in it, she says, if the person criticizing you is someone who you really don't respect, then don't listen to the criticism. Don't take it. But if it's someone who you respect and you think is saying it because they care about you, then think about it and maybe there's something you can, you can learn. So she did write this essay. And then she had some great quotes. So one of her quotes is, you have to get skin as thick as a rhinoceros hide. I saw that. And that's a good one. And then she said, women are like tea bags. We don't know how strong we are until we get in hot water. Ah. And of course, she was in lots of hot water. But I think her most famous quote about criticism is this one, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And so people were trying to make her feel inferior with this kind of criticism and saying, you're, you're first lady, what are you doing meddling? Get back home, take care of your invalid husband, that kind of thing. But she was saying, I'm not going to consent to that idea. Wow. Because I have work I wanted to do. So no one can make you feel inferior without your consent, I think is just a great quote. That's a very up. good quote. I mean, I there's a couple of little things that I pointed out in the book. You guys got to get this book and read it out there. But the one thing is, you know, handle c- criticism with less emotion and more intelligent. Be open to constructive ideas. Be strong in the face of unjust attacks. And then there's another one that I just really love too, is understand that with leadership, and what I mean by leadership is once you've taken your voice, once you've found your issue and you're willing to stand up, once you've found your passion, it's not even an issue, once you find your passion and you're willing to stand up and speak out about it, leadership comes with criticism. Expect it and be ready for it. Love it. Exactly. Exactly. Because you're making change, people are going to be uncomfortable and some people are going to be upset and you will get criticism. So yes, get your skin as thick as a rhinoceros hide. Get ready. (laughs) Get ready. I agree with that. And here's the other thing that I love so much about doing this podcast. And you and I talked about what do I get out of it? It's, you know, I don't have advertisers yet. That's something that will come in the future. It is altruistic right now. I am trying to get the wisdom and knowledge that I give in my workshops, not both workshops, speaking with impact and women leading with impact, because the foundation of that is the voice. And we right now, listening to this last story about Eleanor and the civil rights push that she has, we're sitting in the middle of a very opportunistic moment for leadership. And I believe strongly that women are well prepared to lead right now because of the things we bring to the table, because of the multitasking, because of the relationship building. And I think that this model that Eleanor had, being strong yet feminine, is exactly the model and what it will take. Tell me, how do you feel about that? Well, it's interesting you said that because her first book, Eleanor's first book, which was written around 1933, so in the depths of the Depression, was called It's Up to the Women. And in that book, she talks about some sort of homely things like, you know, cooking and taking care of your family in the 1930s. But then she also says things like, 
we're never going to get out of this crisis without women stepping up. <laughs> and women, women are the ones who are going to make the change and save the world. So she, she clearly saw that. I think that's absolutely true now. I mean, look at how the men have mucked it up. <laughs> we, can, we can spend another you know, few hours talking about that. Yeah. We desperately need women's leadership. And you know, I hope that women will listen to this kind of thing and read Leadership the Eleanor Roosevelt way. I'm doing a course. I talked about leadership your way. Because we need to develop women's leadership and, and hopefully women will step up. Yes. I think Eleanor absolutely if she I think sometimes I think, what would Eleanor do? <laughs> and of course now I often think, what would Eleanor do? I think the first thing is she would communicate in every way, every new way. She would have a Twitter feed and, you know, every kind of a Facebook page and all of it. You know, she would have everything because she really understood that. And she would be speaking out and talking about the idea that change starts in the smallest place. It starts at home. It starts in your neighborhood. It starts in your community. And that idea that you can make change wherever you are, and it is important, it all adds up, is one that I think sometimes people lose sight of and feel overwhelmed by the national conversation and, oh, what, what can I possibly do about that? Well, you can. And she deeply believed, she said, change begins in small places like your home and your neighborhood. So yes, I hope the women listening will get that and do whatever, take an action to make change. If it's getting involved with the PTA or some group in your town, whatever it is. There are so many ways that we can get involved now that can have not only a national reach, but a global reach as we more and more become the sandbox that we're playing in is a global sandbox. And we affect each other in that sandbox. And we need a lot of moms, soccer moms. And, you know, I'm using this as a metaphor, folks. Don't get too out there on that. I'm using it as a metaphor that we need a lot of women to really guide that expansion of collective togetherness. That's how I would put it, collective togetherness. And I so thank Eleanor Roosevelt for the work that she's done in civil rights. And I would recommend that we all look at ways to not only celebrate diversity, but to support diversity in all its ways. There's lots of diverse ways of being. And I think that that's important in our global, in our global world as we strive towards the next step in creating leadership that truly leads. Yeah, I think she'd be very disappointed at the state of civil rights in the country. I mean, she died in 1962, just before the Civil Rights Act was passed. She would have been very happy about that and the Voting Rights Act, of course. But the Voting Rights Act has been deeply undermined. And I could see that she would be that would be one of the things she would be working on. The idea of democracy was hugely important to her. And the idea that we can't keep the democracy without educating children about it. And so the state of education and really teaching children about the Constitution and First Amendment rights and the right to vote and all those uh, kinds of rights would be something I'm sure she would be working on. Yeah, I think so too. 
Well, I've had a wonderful, wonderful moment in time with you. I knew our interview was going to go a little long. So for those of you who are used to having the 30-minute drive with us, we may have taken a 45-minute drive. But I think what we experienced today with you, Robin, and the channeling of Eleanor and her way of thinking is so essential for today's message to women. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and the connection, the platform that you brought, and the wisdom that you continue to bring to women to succeed in our world. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. And if people want to learn more, they can go to robingerber.com. That's my website. And they can find the book there, Leadership the Eleanor Roosevelt Way. And like I said, I am starting an online course called Leadership Your Way that will take stories from her and other women leaders I've written about. Yes. And I really want to encourage my listeners to participate in the things that Robin is going to be doing. I think somehow, Robin, we're going to be connected and getting our voices out there because we have this connection with Deborah Sue and Deborah Sue and I are talking about a uh, women divas on tour, women on tour and bringing in the power of the women that we're connected with and taking the message out there on the road. So I'm, I can foresee that that would be something that you'll be involved in. So thanks again for coming. Just before we leave, I want to encourage you to download Women Express and subscribe. Make sure you subscribe and follow us. The more that we can get subscribers and the more that you follow us, the better it'll be for you and your friends. Tell your friends about this podcast because my feeling is, my mission, my passion is we can create a revolution, we can stand up and use our voices, and we can change this world. So come on, women, express. Thank you, Robin, for being here. Take care, everyone out there. And let's get out there and express.